My name is Rick Archer, and I'll be introducing the other people here in just a second. Um, a couple of years ago, several of us, um, actually, I think all of us have been on the spiritual scene for a long time, and we all, independent of one another, um, had become very concerned about a lot of the behavior uh, in spiritual communities, especially by spiritual teachers. Um, my personal concern is that I feel very deeply that the upwelling of, of spiritual awakening in the world, which many has been alluded to many times so far during this conference, uh, as being critical to the survival of the world, uh, was being sabotaged or handicapped or shot in the foot by um, this behavior, sometimes very egregious, within spiritual communities, primarily by teachers, primarily by male teachers. And um, I felt like perhaps I could play some little role in helping to um, raise awareness of what may or may not be appropriate behavior for a spiritual teacher. It's pretty common sense, actually, because it's appropriate behavior for a human being. But sometimes spiritual teachers are presumed to be wiser or more enlightened or something, and they're given a pass when they behave in certain ways that you know, ordinarily people would be called on the carpet for behaving. So in any case, a couple of years ago I gave a talk about this, and Jack O'Keefe attended, and Craig attended, I believe, and afterwards we had lunch, and we, we said, you know, we ought to get together some kind of spiritual, some kind of organization which would try to establish a code of ethics such as lawyers and doctors and therapists and many other helping professions have that just kind of lays out some guidelines of what would be appropriate, what is should be appropriate um, behavior for spiritual teachers. And I want to say from the outset, because often the knee-jerk reaction when we mention this endeavor is that we, we have, we're this, these judgmental people who expect to wield some kind of authority over the spiritual community and, you know, you know, levy fines or penalties or something if people misbehave. No such thing. Uh, we're not like the AMA, which could grant uh, or revoke licenses. Um, but we just, we're just a bunch of people who are, like all of you, who would just like to see the whole thing be neater and cleaner and stop seeing people being injured, sometimes quite severely, by uh, the way some teachers have behaved. So, um, after a year or so, this organization had been formed and had been established as a 501c3, a nonprofit. And in the, in the next year, uh, we were um, honored by having Mariana Kaplan and Miranda McPherson join us. In fact, Mar Miranda came to our presentation last year and she was, came up afterwards, she was like, yes, oh. <laughs> and then she ended up becoming part of our board of directors. Okay, so I mentioned them in passing. I just want to read a little bit longer bios. Before I do that, I just want to ask, how many in the audience here actually serve in the capacity of spiritual teacher in some way, shape, or form? Quite a few. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, is there anything else I should say before we do the bios? I'm curious how many people have been impacted by trauma and unethical behavior in the spiritual path. Again, quite a few. All right, so so most of some of you, many of you know by firsthand experience why we feel this need, and I think others have read enough of the accounts of the scandals that come out weekly to uh, 
acknowledge that, yeah, there's some sort of need for some greater impeccability in, in the spiritual community. So let me just introduce our speakers. To my left is Jack O'Keefe. Jack is a spiritual teacher who focuses on, uh, on prior to consciousness or beyond non-duality. She pioneers non-traditional models of spirituality and is a founding member of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. She's also been like our main engine in terms of, she do, uh, dedicates a whole day of each week to focusing on it and she's worked very hard to, to get it together. Um, okay, and Jack's second book, How to Be a Spiritual Rebel, was released this week. Mariana Kaplan, I remember running into Mariana uh, Sand up in San Rafael a number of years ago, and I'd already read a couple of her books, such as Halfway Up the Mountain, The Error of Premature Claims to Awakening, and Do You Need a Guru, <laughs> which is a great title, and uh, Do You Need a Guru, and I, I saw her name tag, Mariana Kaplan, God, I love your books, and so it's wonderful to now be you know, a friend and, and involved with her. Uh, Mariana is an author, consultant, psychotherapist, and yoga teacher who brings over 20 years of research, teaching, and the publication of nine books on topics related to the intersection of psychology, spirituality, yoga, world religions, and contemporary spiritual traditions. Um, I'll cut these a little short. Um, Moran, uh, Craig Holiday, I asked for one sentence bios, Craig gave me one. Craig Holliday is a spiritual teacher and therapist and founding member of the ASI. Nailed <laughs> it. Miranda McPherson is a spiritual teacher, author, and founder of the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation in London, where she trained and ordained over 600 ministers. Today she leads the Living Grace Sangha in Northern California and leads retreats internationally, sharing a feminine approach to non-dual realization. Okay, so... Where shall we start? I've talked enough for, for starters, and who would like to plunge in? And We have a number of specific topics we're going to cover, um, which I could read the bullet points of, but you guys know what they are and what you particularly want to cover, so who would like to go first on one of these points? Why don't you start with one of the questions? Okay, so uh, here's one. I'll just take them from the top. What characterizes, what qualities characterize a psychologically healthy teacher, student, and spiritual community. <clears throat> Who would like to take that? It's a Mariana question. Um, Mariana question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, the qualities that characterize a healthy spiritual teacher is um, somebody who, um, in their, especially in their internal identity and heart of hearts, is is a student of the path and is a servant of the path and as a function as a teacher. Um, it is somebody who um, ongoingly pursues their own, not only spiritual growth, but psychological growth um, that pursues knowledge of trauma healing, whether it's for their own trauma or because um, most of the people that will come to them have been impacted by trauma. And uh, those are just a couple of qualities, but in terms of, of students, it's students who are willing to be empowered, to be adults in relationship to their spiritual teacher and not defer authority or assume that because somebody's a spiritual teacher or is so-called awakened that they either have the answers, should be given control for their life, especially in areas that are not directly related to their spiritual growth, like relationships, money, sexuality, having children, worst of all, um, and 
healthy spiritual communities, I, um, I'm fortunate to be consulting for one of them right now. And it's, it's a community that says, like, we need to continue to, um, just like a teacher and just like a student, pursue our ongoing growth, get external feedback, um, have external checks and balances where the teachers are not li um, living and practicing in isolation and without feedback and peer support. Good. Okay. Um, I should add that Mariana says that for quite a few years she has been consulting with both teachers and students who have been embroiled in various kinds of scandals and misbehaviors and so on. So she probably knows more about the dirty secrets of the spiritual community than anybody. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to maybe add something, Rick. Uh -huh. uh, just one of the big things that I see is. Um, you know, if, if someone's looking for a teacher, is the teacher an adult? Are they mature? Now, do they walk the talk? Do they live and embody the truth? And you can see really quickly, you know, just spending a little bit of time with someone, you know, do they embody it? And then beyond that is, do they have a sense of humility? Are they willing to receive feedback? Uh, we are all human. We will all make mistakes. We're all works in progress. And so does one have the humility to, to continue to grow, to look at their shadow? Uh, like Mariana was speaking, have they done their trauma work? Are they continuing to do uh, their trauma work? Uh, do they receive feedback just generally from friends, from family, from you, from their neighbor? Now, what kind of person are they? And then a great question as a student, you know, I often ask myself this is, am I showing up as an adult with my teacher? How much am I projecting onto them? Because sometimes it's, you know, us, the student, that's projecting, and we're wanting the teacher to be our father, our mother, our best friend, and of course they can't be all those. And so to have that sense of uh, taking accountability for oneself, so both both ways, and that's one of the things uh, we invited at the ASI is to have, you know, a general standard code of ethics for teachers, just a general code of good practice and conduct, but then an accompanying code and guidelines for students. Of, you know, how should I behave in relationship? Should I throw myself at the guru's feet, or you know, can I show up as a psychologically mature? Individual, Can I also get, you know, go see a therapy for therapeutic support and see my spiritual teacher for spiritual teaching support? You know, so it, it works both ways, I think. Um, I'll jump in on the next question. Could I oh. just add, add, yeah, just on, on that, if I can just add another layer to build on what Mariana and um, Craig have said. You know, Craig was saying in a few days, you know, you'd have a sense, yes, an intuitive sense of a teacher, but how many students here would be willing to ask a teacher, are you open to feedback? What do you do when a crisis happens in your own life? Do you have professional support when your own psychology is up for growth? I would love to have these questions asked of me and they've never been asked, yeah. never. To me, that's huge. And one of the things that I would be looking for and that I think if anyone is teaching, it's really an integrity issue to make sure that you build support 
so that you come out of the teacher position on a regular basis with somebody else who you're willing to allow to call you to account and who isn't just going to you know, idealize you all the time. And to put that in place as a structure in your life to me is part of the embodiment of integrity and what humility means in taking on the role of teacher, that you're not always the teacher. Yeah. I mean, Miranda, don't you go to other teachers on a regular basis Absolutely. and just sit there as a student? And I do that every two weeks. Every two weeks? Every wow. two weeks. And I have a relationship with these two people yeah. where I have said to them, please, anything you can see in me that is not entirely integrated or any shadow material, anything you think I should be looking at, please bring that to my attention. Help me look at it. Yeah. Help me go to the root of it. And I do at least two, sometimes three retreats a year with other spiritual teachers. Yeah. So I'm just an ordinary person, yeah. just a student in the field with everybody else. And, and I, I would say that um, being privy to really um, hundreds or thousands of spiritual scandals um, of the teachers that have been in that position, almost none of them do what, what you're saying that you do as a spiritual teacher. Right. This is why I do it, because I've seen that too, and I've seen that it's very easy to get caught up in a teacher's shell, you know, for your ego to just get off on the idealization that being a teacher becomes and to start to buy your own propaganda a bit too much. And that's a really painful thing for everybody. When I was trained as a TM teacher in 1970, Maharishi specifically said to us, don't go and see other teachers because if you're seen sitting in the audience, people will presume that you're still seeking, you know, <laughs> and that you don't actually, wow. you're not already, in, you know, you don't have all the knowledge you need, you know, or something like that. And, wow, golly. Uh, you know, that, that seemed, I bought into it, but now it seems crazy. I completely disagree with that view. Yeah, yeah. Because for me, what, the, what it embodies is that's a trustworthy teacher. That's a teacher who's willing to come off their pedestal and just be a person and acknowledge that no matter what we might have realized, there's more to learn, there's more we can learn, and you know, it also keeps one in touch with the vulnerability of the student mm. and the beauty of that, that it helps me be more respectful and honorable in my work as a teacher with others. Yeah. I should add that I got booted out of the TM movement for seeing another teacher. <laughs> okay. Um, good, good thing to have happened. Um, not that, I, but I still respect and admire and appreciate and honor all the benefit I derive from that. But it was a nice way to make the transition. Um, so, what's the next point we should consider here? Um, well, here's one. Um, what defines a healthy teacher-student relationship? Um, what does it play when the what is at play when the teacher consciously or unconsciously cultivates dependency in their students? Narcissistic issues. Narcissistic. <laughs> well, there's if there's a need on behalf of the teacher to have idealization, and you. You know, you have to really look at what's at the core of that. Well, it's usually the teacher trying to get some kind of narcissistic supply, some kind of support for their self-image as some superior person. And, you know, but what I think is a little delicate is that the process of idealizing our teacher is a natural process. It can't not be there. So I think the conversation about students behaving like adults 
I agree with that. And just as children, it's a natural phase of our development to idealize our parents until we grow out of that phase. It's also a natural part when we're opening into new dimensions that are really beyond what we even understand to lean into our teacher and their body of wisdom and look up to them. But the role of the teacher is not to abuse that, to understand that process and not to take advantage of it. And also to tolerate when that idealization breaks down as it inevitably will. And to be humble enough to to relax and be okay with the student coming to see, hey, you got feet of clay. You have arguments with your spouse. You lose your temper from time to time. You're not perfect at everything. And to model that this is not about spiritual perfection, it's about spiritual practice. And that includes us all ongoingly. And also, I, I think there's just a basic ignorance that, that people have, uh, just lack of training. You know, if a teacher hasn't been properly trained, you know, then oftentimes we just fall into the same traps that a beginner therapist would fall into, a beginner massage therapist, whatever it is. It's, and people get, it's easy to get caught in projection, transference, counter-transference on the path. If you don't know how to spot it, if you have no idea even what that is or what that means, you know, it can be a beautiful thing as you come forward in your gift to get all kinds of great feedback from others. But then if you have the shadow and a need in there, you know, a narcissistic need, or I could even take that down a notch, just a human need for friendship, for relationship. You know, oftentimes, you know, the same kind of interplay that happens, say, in an unhealthy marriage where, you know, husband or wife is not receiving, you know, a good, healthy sense of love, you know, sometimes that teacher or therapist or whoever they are, they might receive that need from their students. And if they haven't been properly trained, if they don't have, you know, a clear code of ethics, you know, to fall back on, then we fall into these traps. A lot of times teachers who get involved with scandals, whether it's big or small, they're good, they're good people who got a little bit confused and then a little bit more confused. And, what, you know, like Miranda's saying, you know, if the teacher has greater humility, they get a little bit confused and they realize, oh, I need some support, I need some supervision, I need some help, I need to receive some feedback. If they are lacking humility and uh, they have a, a high degree of arrogance, you know, then they can get in a lot of trouble. Or even shame, because sometimes yeah. when we make mistakes, and all human beings make mistakes, you know, can we own that in yeah. a spirit of compassion for ourselves, and, you know, and use it to go, oh, what do I need to learn here? You know, where do I need to go in order to learn that? What, what's the gap? And address that. But I think because of this strange idea that if you sit in the teacher's seat that nothing should come up out of you sideways, which isn't realistic anyway, then there's not the appropriate attitude, the mature attitude, that when we do make mistakes and those mistakes become apparent, you know, often we feel ashamed about them and then hide them, which is very dangerous, rather than bring it out into the open and address it. You know, more on this or another point? Um. Okay. Um, in the regular world, non-spiritual world, um, you know... <laughs> is there a non-spiritual world? Well, there is only one world. Example. So, for instance, we may have had a, 
there, there might be an expert physicist. Einstein was said to have been a bit of a womanizer. Um, Ulysses S. Grant was a drinker. Lincoln once said, find out what kind of whiskey he drinks. I want to give a bottle to all my generals. Um, we don't expect people in various relative fields like that to necessarily be paragons of virtue or to be sort of perfect behaviorally and so on. And yet somehow in the spiritual world, we associate higher consciousness or awakening or something with more um, ideal behavior as well, that there's a correlation between being in a higher state and not acting like a jerk. Um, but I've had people tell me, oh no, you, you could be you know, a raging alcoholic or, um, you know, and yet be enlightened. Or, you know, I, I heard a spiritual teacher recently give a talk who claims to be awake advocating uh, adultery, especially for men, um, because it's, it's more natural for them or something. So uh, is there a correlation or, or should there be between higher consciousness, however we want to define it, and more impeccable behavior? The, by, by choosing the function of a spiritual teacher, there's not an inherent correlation. And like Miranda's saying, like spiritual teachers are absolutely as human as anyone else. But to take that function, which, um, you know, I have, in my case, I, I've never wanted that function because I believe that, not because of that, but that you, you have a higher degree of accountability and your blind spots are going to be magnified um, by your position, magnified by the projections that come onto you. So to, to take that function is to um, not to take the responsibility to not err and not to show your errors and apologize for them, but to, um, to choose to align your life um, with with a kind of integrity, especially right, in relationship to sexuality, the topics of today, sexuality, money, and power. It's not that you know those things from the beginning, but you take it on to, to pursue that diligently and to keep pursuing that because it's your obligation. Yeah. Well, and one of the things just, you know, I, I was trained as a, a counselor and as a teacher, and so I just projected, you know, the basic, you know, codes of ethics onto spiritual teaching and so when you do that, when you have that training in the beginning, it's so helpful. It's just helpful. It keeps things simple to say, I'm agreeing to these basic rules going forward. When you don't have that and you jump in and you say, okay, I'm supposed to live by integrity, things can get messy real, real quick, real quick. And when the teacher stops becoming a learner, I've seen examples of that with the idea of transcendence. I think I could probably count on one hand the amount of people who actually authentically have convinced me that they understand what transcendence is. And words like this have, are easy to glean from scripture. They're bended about very easily and they're not understood at all. And so what happens then is that they're used to create a blind spot. So the teacher can imagine, yeah, I've transcended such and such. This is the movement of pure consciousness. And it's bullshit. <laughs> because they don't realize they must keep learning. There will always be blind spots by virtue of being beautifully evolving homo sapiens. That's the deal. And why do we want to hide in the first place? You know, why do we want to hide behind anything? What is that? And how do we change our culture to throw off what we've inherited for thousands of years about the impeccability of a teacher. How do we throw off that false goal 
which was really used to control in, the, in a way that religions control. Why would we subjugate ourselves to something that is so inherently about suffering and power in a negative way? Like it's up for each of us to embrace a lifelong learning, be it seeker, be it teacher, in whatever capacity. There is lifelong learning or else you're denying your humanness. You're stopping evolving. You're pulling out of the ecosystem. Whatever lens of perception you want to look at, it's the same gig. I'd like to say something that links what you were originally asking with what you've just said, Jack, and that is that, you know, I think we've all been around, you know, teachers, and the whole reason we've been inspired to sit with them in the first place is because there's something coming off them that we recognize as just beautiful, as very refined. There's these essential qualities that they radiate, and naturally we want to be around that and we want to learn how do we allow those beautiful qualities of our true nature to shine forth in us as well? But my own experience, and I've seen this in my students too, is that there's not just one great big spiritual orgasm and then you're done. You know, there are many different levels of awakening and different kinds of awakening. And, you know, the awakening to deeper realization is the easy part, in my own experience, that actualization, the integration of those states takes years. Yep. And I think that's, again, coming back to humility, why we need to really put in place some actual structures of support to help us work through the kinds of issues that deeper realization will push up in us. And it forces us to really deal with, and teachers who don't, it comes up in their communities. It shows up as problems with their students or places where that teacher it just can't actually take feedback in and utilize that feedback to grow and learn. So I think that there needs to be a little bit more understanding in the wider community about that balance between the, the realization and the actualization and what does actualizing what we've realized and embodying it into every moment and interaction that life brings and complex situations such as what we're dealing with now, what does that look like and what does it involve and what supports are needed for that to actually happen? I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the word enlightenment or awakened. Um, they, they have this static, superlative connotation, you know, and it's kind of like the word education. Would you ever say, I'm educated? You know, that's it. Obviously not. I mean, I, I'm staying in a house nearby, and, and the the sun. I'm in the son's room. And there are all these books on the shelf about calculus and C plus plus and advanced chemistry and all. I don't know anything that's in any of those books. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of educated in certain ways, but there's a vast world of knowledge out there that I'll never tap into in this life. Um, so, in terms of spirituality, I think there's something comparable. Um, even though we might think of it as a specialized field, I don't know if there's any end to the depth of it or the embodiment of it. There's a Sufi saying that there's an end to the path in God, but no end to the path. How's it? No end to the There's an end to the path to God, but there's no end to the path in God. And so, if anybody ever says they're done, don't trust them. Run for the door. <laughs> but however, like on one type of the path for sure, there is a phase, because it happened to me, there is a phase of where you can only abide in the non-dual awareness, where you haven't matured enough to actually have 
uh, multiple lenses of perception available to you at the same time. That's a tricky spot. Yes. So even though we're talking about exceptions to that, that type of awakening happens for many people. You know, where it's, it's generally two years, and you're primarily, your primary way of perceiving everything is through the unified field. It's through knowing that this is illusion. And then, of course, with some maturity, it comes back in. Oh, it's real and it's not real. I see. There's separation and there's, it's the same and it's different, really. And how do we mature into be able to hold and honor both lenses of perception without judging one over the other? Yeah. Well, maybe it's not both. Maybe it's a, it's a spectrum. Yes. Right. And again, I think that challenges us even to not presume that the models of the East are necessarily complete. And, I mean, that's a bigger conversation, but I think it's a really interesting one to consider, you know, how do we really come back down from the mountain? Maybe, Mariana, you have something to say about that. Yeah, I, I think, as you mentioned, Rick, having, um, having worked with so many enlightened fallen teachers and communities, I, 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 I deeply hold to like, the possibility of um, endless awakening and that it belongs you know, and is inherent in each of us and is our birthright. And at the same time, any fixed notion of arrival is a deterrent. Um, and, and like, I'm glad you made that point, Jack, but a couple of years of non-dual abidance, what happens? You know, somebody becomes a teacher, somebody starts gathering their students, they write their book, they proclaim, and yeah. the greatest danger, I mean, besides to the students, is to oneself, because, because then you, you stop the process, you know, of, of not only the endless possibilities of awakening, you know, the, I love how the yoga scriptures, they, they detail this, what, what, what kind of passes for awakening in much of Western culture is, is like, but the first level, you know, of awakening in the Yoga Sutras and the next. And, you know, those people at the seventh level, I've met one of them in my life. And that's not even about the embodiment of that and how that applies, um, right? Because then not only the possibilities of awakening are endless, but the possibilities of, of embodiment are endless. And that says nothing to do with still our, how we show up ethically, our capacity, our whole so, our emotional development, our um, development and our relational capacities. So, so we, I think we, we really hurt ourselves as a culture um, to, to, to hold to this notion of, of enlightenment while at the same time not diminishing, which I fell into the trap of. I heard so much disillusionment that it was for, there was a time that I almost gave up on my own awakening process because it was there was so much damage and futility, right? So the flip side was that I had to call myself again, like this is inherent in each of us. And but that the notion of arrival or calling anybody enlightened or themselves calling themselves enlightened or awakened, it just seems so useless to me. Unnecessary. Here, here. I think one problem with regarding a teacher is having arrived at the pinnacle of enlightenment is, we've discussed that quite a bit, but, but what, um, a problem with the student thinking that there is such a pinnacle is that student is never going to feel like he's reached it, and therefore he's, there's a certain sort of undermining of where one is actually at at the, at the moment, which can be um, really quite nice if you relax into it and 
realize that you know every day is life, and and we don't want to pass over the present for some glorious future. And uh, you know we we can really be in a nice state. But if you're always sort of pining for something other than what you're experiencing, it it can, te- can keeps you keeps throwing you off. Um, well, keeps you in the search. In the search, yeah. And there's a different. People say give up the search. You may find that a time may come when you feel like you're not searching anymore, but you certainly are, are still learning and exploring and discovering and deepening and all that, and I don't think that ever ends. But the, the, the emptiness, the sort of, oh, I, I'm going to die if I don't get this, that, that drops off and there's contentment dawns, but that's definitely not the end of the, the journey. Yeah, didn't Dogen say practice is realization and realization is practice? Mm. Another point we have here on our list is um, group mind, um, group think, you know, and within spiritual communities and how it contributes to unhealthy behavior or cult-like tendencies. And I'm reminded of that, that story, which is kind of horrific, but about putting a frog in water and, um, you know, heating it gradually as opposed to throwing a frog into boiling water or hot water. In that case, the frog jumps out because... It notices the contrast, but if the water heats gradually, the frog doesn't notice, and it and it just eventually dies in, in the hot water. So you can be in a spiritual community; it can go farther and farther off the rails, and you don't realize it because you're in the group mind or the group think, and you kind of just go along with it to absurd degrees sometimes. I've traveled around a little bit uh, to different communities, and it's always been interesting to walk into the community and see. You know, what are the rules here? What are the games? You know, all the unspoken stuff. And sometimes it's really clean and clear, and that's nice. And sometimes it's really weird and bizarre and neurotic and, and crazy. And one of the things that I've seen just, you know, in, in my work, because I work with so many different students from different traditions, is the amount of pain that people uh, have experienced, not only from the teacher, but, say, from the group, from the sangha, and the games and the power structures, the jockeying to get to close to the teacher, to be in the inner circle, the outer circle, you know, getting kicked in or put in and, you know, all that stuff. And then when someone, you know, when those communities fail or when someone loses, you know, uh, their relationship with their teacher, all the great pain because then they lose the relationship with that community and it, it's a breath of fresh air because then they get step into something sane, but they're also uh, there's great grief there as well. And so I've always found it fascinating because when you step onto the grounds of an ashram or a Zen center or you know, Tibetan Buddhist center, or whatever it is, you'll notice almost like this little bubble, you know, as you go over the gates. I just had this happen when I went to Christ in the desert in New Mexico. I felt the rules of the silence of the monks. It was pretty, pretty healthy, but still I felt that bubble and the group think that was present there. You know, and it, it's within all communities. It's not necessarily bad, but some of it's really, uh, really unhealthy. Um, well, so many times when students have, have come to me with their complaints, uh, the, ver- the first thing I say is, have you talked to your teacher about that? And more often than not, they will give some version of, I can't, you know, I, I just know that I can't. It's in the structure of the community. I know my teacher will be defensive. And 
And I say, well, that may well be possible, but have you tried? And, and you know what, what often prevents us from trying? Well, we're scared, right? We want, we're afraid that we might lose some closeness or we might lose some specialness or we might be disillusioned by what we find. But that's where we circle back to the absolute necessity of being an adult in relationship to our teachers. And at the same time, not expecting our teachers to be perfect. So it's not challenging our teacher like you do this, but, but letting ourselves have the questions, letting ourselves wrestle with them, and taking the courage to bring that to our teachers while giving them permission to be perfectly imperfect teachers. And, and I feel like that's like a very healthy part of the student-teacher relationship. It's the, the student raising the teacher, right? Not just the, the teachers raising the students. And I think just the element there is really our, our own courage and, and being willing to, to risk, you know, whatever it feels that we have in order to, um, for truth, right? For, for real awakening. I'd like to open it up to audience participation now. And uh, somebody has a mic. And so there's this. Oh, would they have to use Miranda's mic? Okay. And if Miranda wants to say something, we'll get it back to her. So um, maybe can, somebody could run around with the mic. And, and um, please be sure you have the mic before you ask a question or anything. Uh, very interesting to hear you all. Uh, I'm a recovering addict, and I, I must admit I have been a recovering guru addict as well. <laughs> I've been, I've probably seen like 32 gurus, I had like 12 of them living in my house, and I'm very touched hearing what you say, and I can say a lot of things about this, but it's fantastic what you do now, because, you know, this is, uh, otherwise we get a new uh, church or whatever out of this whole thing, so... I appreciate so much what I'm here, and I, I read your uh, Mariana Kaplan's books when I got very hurt by Indian guru, um, uh, the one that you need a guru and uh, halfway up the mountain, and it was that was so important for me to read those books of you. So I, I thank you so much for writing these books. Thank you. But please, uh, guru addiction. Have you heard about that? Like any other process addiction. Yeah. The codependency that I think you spoke about that you can be, uh, you know, depending on wh where you come from, you know, in, in, in your upbringing that you hook on to the guru. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now I work in the field of addiction, so I'm both ways. And some people are saying, go ahead, some people are saying the guru model is over, nobody should go to a guru. I wouldn't go to that extreme. I, th I think that there are healthy guru situations that one could be involved in at a certain stage of their development. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but obviously it's time to no longer tolerate or accept uh, some of the unhealthy guru situations that have prevailed. Yeah. I think you and I, Rick, have both shown up to Alma many times, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and received support and a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All your, all your comments and some very wonderful uh, comments about some general things. I, w I wonder if you would address uh, specifically uh, economics. Yeah, money. We were going to talk about money. <coughs> Jack's special. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bone I'm chewing these days. Um, I, I, know I can see some of the faces were at my talk earlier this morning, so I don't want to um, waste time saying the same thing again. That talk would be on YouTube soon. 
Do repeat the good but points. But in a nutshell. Yeah, but so in a, in a nutshell, we have more work to do around money than what we're, we realise. It's going to take us a long time to tidy up that one. And partly because the, the, the model as regard ethical behaviour, like Craig said earlier, you know, there's a code of ethics that he used when he was a counsellor. There's a code of ethics in, in HEPA for, for medical field. So there isn't positive models of how to have a healthy relationship with money in the world at large. You see, so we're a step behind. That positive model isn't there, so we don't have that to draw on. So we've got to start at the beginning. So this is why I think it takes extra work to tidy up our own relationship with money and to use our own discernment regarding what is the financial cost of my spiritual, my spiritual development. And yes, it can be priced. It must be priced. Because your money is your energy, and you've got to figure out what proportion of your salary you want to spend on it. Not just because, oh, I should give everything. Oh, my heart is opening with this, this spiritual teaching. Wait, wait till I just write a, an enormous check that the universe then will, will pay my mortgage next month. You know? So, so all types of tricks and hacks come in to further obscure economics. We've a long way to go. So I wish I had a solution. All I can do is give tools. <laughs> Let's be more aware. I thank you so much, all of you, for all of this. Mariana, your book, The Guru Question, for me too, has been hugely supportive for me in my journey with my teacher. Um, I have a two-part question. Um, one is, you know, when I came on the path, and, you know, we talk about it a lot, we feel we're in pain. Right? many of us who come on the path. I was, I thought I was mature, but I wasn't. And so we can talk about ethical behavior and also, also and you did in your book, you talked about being a responsible student. Um, but can you give a little bit more detail just around things for ourselves to really question and look into? Then my second question, second part is actually kind of bigger. I'm hearing, Jack, um, a completely new paradigm for spiritual communities. And so what I see in that, and I, I would love a more, um, more dialogue in my community, more give and take, evening the playing field a little so that we're practicing together, so that when my teacher practices, I really get the benefit of that practice, right? As opposed to it being removed from me. But there's a, a dissolution of our current spiritual communities. It sounds like that has to happen a bit in order for this new period. Can you kind of speak to what that transition might look like? Thanks. Um, I'm conscious that there's two questions. I'll just do a quick one for the um, reply. Because I'm a teacher, I think the onus is on us to make the bigger shift. It's about us doing our work. So I'm interested in mobilizing teachers. I've had copious conversations with Rick, who, who is you know, fielding all kinds of painful stories, um, real life experiences of students who've been treated so badly. And he's like, let's mobilize the students. And I'm like, I have to do it within my own community. So where I'm working at is like, 
If we were open to feedback, that's the step right now, is being open to feedback. I want students to, to question their teacher so that in Mariana's example that she gave earlier, have, have you as a student brought that to the teacher? Have you tried? Expect if the teacher is full of resistance and assumes it's your projection, expect that. I said, well, have you considered that maybe this is a projection that you're sending back on me? Because to me, it's a projection. So, so it, we almost need the students to be doubly aware. And I don't want to put all that onus on the students because I think we're the ones who are supposed to be sages. We're supposed to be the elders. We're the ones who don't have our shit together. You know? Just to uh, give you my argument. That, yeah. Um, I, I sort of feel like students can hold teachers' feet to the fire and that very often students doubt themselves. There's a certain you know, aura around the teacher as being really super and special and all that and knowing something which the students don't know. And so the teacher can do stuff and the students, rather than doubt what the teacher's doing, will doubt their own perception or their own judgment. They'll think, well, he's enlightened, I'm not. Therefore, I guess it's okay for him to do this stuff. What do I know? So I'm just saying if, te if students had a more confidence and their common sense, then they would say, no, that's wrong. You know, I don't care who he is, that people shouldn't behave that way. And if, if they were to speak up to the teacher, like you're just saying, then things could get sorted out maybe. Well, and, and that's a spiritual path too, in and of itself, because what I've seen often is, is students actually speaking up to the teacher and the teacher laying it on heavier, their spiritual concepts, their defensiveness for the behavior, attacking the students. Yeah, but if and so then the numbers, though, then, if well, all the students were doing it. Yeah, but well, hold on. So, so then the student gets doubly wounded, like yeah. a deeper wound. But then, again, for the student to see, this is part of my path to grow deeper into my own integrity, my strength, my confidence. Here is my teacher. You know, he, she, you know, they betrayed me. And now can I continue to go forward on this path? Because a lot of students become disillusioned in that moment and they leave the path. And that's heartbreaking. I've met people who've spent decades who've left and then come back and said, okay, I want to give this another shot again. But you know, not to go away for decades, to say, okay, this is the path. My teacher let me down. This is the path. I'm going to go forward and grow in my own truth, my own autonomy my own authority. And that's a big step, a big step for the student. I'd like to just come back to what you were raising, because I thought what you were saying was really important about spiritual maturity and how inevitably most of us come to the spiritual path because we're suffering and we're trying to address that suffering. And thank God for it. Often it's the powerful motivator that we need to really dig deeper into ourselves and to, to really engage some musculature in our practice. But spiritual maturity, you know, develops and it doesn't stop. So it doesn't stop developing in the teacher. It doesn't stop developing in the student. And rarely do I find when tough things happen, it's actually black and white. There usually is some big history in the student that is driving a huge transference of various, you know, that has a lot of layers of wounding and trauma and pain and confusion in it. And there's often also something for the teacher to see. So what I'm really interested in, what I hope that we can do together and build over the years is a culture where there's more honesty and more compassion and a cleaner recognition that, you know, spiritual maturity is something that continues 
and that, you know, a person can have a tremendous realization in some areas that is legitimate and is beautiful and we can grow and be nourished by, but that doesn't mean that they're by definition integrated in that realization in all areas. And I think that that's here in the West, you know, what we get confronted with because we live in a much more complex society than the models of the East that have brought with it the guru tradition. So we can't just transplant something that belongs to a whole other cultural system and expect it to work here. We have to evolve with it. I want to add in here that, that spiritual work does not replace psychological work, right, for the, for the teachers or the students, right? We live, you can be a therapist in today's world without ever having done psychotherapy. You can be a psychiatrist without having ever done, done a course of psychotherapy. You can be a spiritual teacher. Spiritual teachers talk about psychology all the time. And when you actually get down on the ground and see how many teachers have done a full course of psychotherapy for myself, I'm committed to doing that at each developmental stage of my life. Because as Miranda said earlier, at each developmental stage, new possibilities and, and um, you know, just new material emerges. So it, I had a 10-year argument with my first wonderful guru about that. And I just basically disagreed. And I went back and pursued my own trauma training my own, my, another course of therapy. And this is, I mean, it's, it's a fatal flaw that, that people want to, right? We come with our suffering. We get all of these big, beautiful teachings about awakening. And we assume that that's going to address our psychological wounds and trauma. It is complementary, highly complementary, but also distinctly different. And I, I will, you know, say again tomorrow, I'm talking about how, you know, my ideas about ending sex scandals on the spiritual path, but there's no alternative other than to engage in, you know, good therapy that is embodied, that has a trauma component, and for every student and teacher to take responsibility for doing that. I mean, we would solve so much of the agony if people would do that simple commitment. It's, it's just healthy and it's wise. It's healthy and it's wise. Bunch of people on this side. How long are we going to? Hi, thanks so much for all that you're saying. Um, I wanted to ask, is it possible that a teacher could refer a student absolutely. when they feel that they're out of their depth? Oh, absolutely. Has that been, have you ever done yeah. that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That could be an answer if, in fact, that training hasn't been given, but they can identify it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to ask about that. Yeah, and it's good to have a network to refer to. Yes, yes. It's not even if you feel that you're not... Sometimes you can just feel that... Oh, sorry. Yes. Sometimes you can feel that a student actually would do better over there than with you. Yes, yes. And, you know, if you really love your students... And if you don't love it, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, if you really love your students, you want what's going to serve them. And I think sometimes as a student, you can, a mature student to a degree, can tell when you're, it doesn't resonate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to know is, um, is there a length of time that you would have a student come to you? Is there a time, years, would you allow that? When, when do they fly? Well, one of the things that I look at is, is does the student have an actual resonance with the lineage if you are part of the lineage? 
And so, like I was with my teacher for decades and I feel him with me now. And so I just feel like I stepped into that. But I also trained in other lineages where it just felt like I'm going to study here for, you know, two years, five years, get something good, and then move forward. Have you had students that fly, that do, that oh, you have yeah, absolutely. had with you? And for what period of time, let's say, do you maintain them as long as they well, keep coming back? Modern-day spirituality is a funny thing. A lot of people window shop and a lot of people come and go. Ah. It's rare that people actually commit to something deep and stick around and are willing to do the hard work. Right. That, that's my personal experience. I, I have different experience in that I really like to work with people over the long term. And I have two sanghas in the Bay Area, and I trained and ordained ministers. So there was a graduation process. And then with those ministers, once they'd gone through a certain curriculum and had been endorsed to go and teach, then they become part of an alumni organization, and the relationship changes, right? However, you know, what I learned going through that experience for 10 years is there's no set time limit per person. It's a very unique relationship that you have with each individual. Um, and so how I work with it now over the long term is we become more practitioners together. There's always that love for one's teacher, but there's more of a there's less asymmetry in the mix, and there's an encouragement from over here in the one who's had the teacher role to sort of encourage them to serve in some way, to see how their gifts and their wisdom want to come forth in the world, whether that wants to happen within the community by bringing forth and giving that person more responsibility or men helping them mentor younger students on the path or whether there's some way that they feel called to embody their wisdom and for me to encourage that. We have two minutes left, so uh, this woman is willing to ask a question. Yes. Um, about 25 years ago, Arnie Mendel said to me, you will always know a great teacher because they are the people who will give their students the very tools and weapons with which to kill them. And I think as teachers, we must do that. And every time I teach a group, I will pass out forms for feedback great to keep me in my integrity and I've been doing that for 20 years now and I think we it's a great um, yeah. thing to do yeah that's that old Buddhist saying you see the Buddha in the road you know it's like kill him yeah, yeah keep walking question okay yeah go ahead I'm imagining we don't have time for a full answer, but I was curious what the impact of your work has been uh, in the recent history and how well is your work being received and are spiritual teachers catching on to what you're offering? Yesterday. You mean the ASI? Yeah. Yeah. Tell her. Yesterday, um, we had a meeting of 45 spiritual teachers and leaders. We created a hermetically sealed confidential space which was not recorded and without microphones and we made a really um we made a step toward bringing forth what what you know leaders were struggling with with their vulnerabilities their needs um i won't try to speak for the asi in general but it's you know we're new and i was i was deeply moved and uplifted by 
the fact that so many teachers were willing to step off of their soapbox or mountaintop or isolation. And, and they were actually, many of us were expressing the need to, they wanted connection. They wanted removal from this isolation. They wanted peers. They wanted feedback. So that's just one example of, you know, I think a beautiful step that we... And, and we met for four hours. It was, it was an incredible meeting. People showed up. They were deep. They shared their tears, their open-heartedness, their vulnerability. It, it was a really beautiful experience. At the yeah. end, we taped something for about 45 minutes, which I'll probably be putting up on YouTube, so you get it. It was a summary of it, and each person in the room made a statement, so. And, and by the way, if, if you are interested in being a part of the ASI, please join us, email us, get a hold of us. Yeah. On the website is spiritualintegrity.org. And we're, we're looking for more support because this is what we're trying to create, a greater change in the, in the culture, to create a greater sense of humility, growth, professionalism in this field so that we can better serve others. So we can better serve. Oh, we're out of time, I'm afraid. So um, if you had something you wanted to say, we might have a few minutes to talk individually with people up here before the next thing starts. But thank you for very much for coming. We really appreciate this nice full room of yeah. people. Yeah, thank you all so much.